If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Welcome back to our special podcast series, delving into everything you wanted to know about some of history's biggest subjects. For this week's episode, we're covering the history of Nazi Germany, with a leading expert in the field, Professor Richard J. Evans. Asking the questions was our editor, Rob Attar. Okay, so for today's podcast, I'm really delighted to be joined by Professor Sir Richard Evans. Richard is a historian who is Regius Professor Emeritus of History at the University of Cambridge and Provost of Gresham College, London. He's one of the world's leading experts on Nazi Germany and has written widely on this and other related subjects including a three-volume history of the Third Reich. He famously acted as an expert witness in the libel case of David Irving versus Deborah Lipstadt, which he subsequently wrote a book about. So Richard, thanks a lot for joining us today. Pleasure to be with you, Rob. So we're going to ask quite a lot of questions that you've sent in on our various uh, social media forums, but just to set up the parameters, when we're talking about Nazi Germany, what period does this cover and what events bookend that period? Well, it begins uh, on the 30th of January, 1933, which is when the leader of the Nazi party, the National Socialist German Workers' Party, uh, Adolf Hitler, uh, was appointed Reich Chancellor of Germany, of the Weimar Republic. That's to say the head of the government under the president, uh, who was Field Marshal von Hindenburg. And there's then about six months in which the Nazis turn that position as head of a a coalition government with conservatives, in which the Nazis were a minority, into a one-party state and dictatorship with Hitler as its head, uh, subsequently just termed the leader, the Führer. Uh, That's by the summer of 1933. And at the other end, it's on the 30th of April, I suppose technically really the 8th of May, 1945, The 30th of April is when Hitler, faced with Soviet troops entering Berlin, uh, commits suicide in his bunker underneath the Reich Chancellery, and then subsequently 8th of May, the surrender of the German, what was left of the German armies to to the Allies. Now, we had a question from Jean Cullum on Facebook, and Jean said, I've heard Hitler was a history buff. Was it the outcome of World War One that drove him, or did his ideas stem from further back? And I guess what they're getting at there is, what's the motivations for Hitler? Well, Hitler wasn't really a history buff. He didn't really care very much about history. 
because his vision was a racist one in which the essential character of races such as the Germans or Aryans or the Jews or the Slavs were essentially unchanging over time. He drew his ideas from a variety of sources, from social Darwinism, a version of social Darwinism that saw uh, society and international relations as a sort of struggle for races, for the survival of the fittest, from the idea of racism, and social Darwinism is sort of basically British, coming down from Charles Darwin, uh, Arthur de Gobineau, a French theorist who really invented the idea of racial theory, pseudo-scientific idea, from Russian emigres, from the... Uh, Bolshevik Revolution in 1917, who brought with them the idea that Bolshevism and communism were creations of the Jewish race from a certain amount of what's called geopolitics, uh, which was invented by an American, and so on. A synthesis of a variety of uh, ideas that essentially saw the world in racial terms and uh, saw... Uh, violence and struggle as the essence of life, in, both domestic uh, in, in Germany itself and international. Um, he got these ideas really at the end of World War One. This is a kind of terrible, surprising defeat for the Germans. Most Germans thought, particularly after the spring offensive of 1918 and the victory over Russia um, in, in, uh, in 1918, to, uh, that they... Uh, they thought they were going to win, and very late on, actually, the Allies had a superiority in tanks, the American troops were flooding onto the Western Front, and Germany had to admit defeat, and then there was a very harsh peace settlement uh, in which Germany lost territory, uh, lost uh, population, had to pay reparations for the damage the German troops had caused in northern France and southern Belgium, uh, limits on the number of men they could have in their armies and the amount of equipment and weapons they could have and so on and so forth. And this came as a terrible shock to Hitler, who had been a soldier on the Western Front, decorated for bravery, just an ordinary soldier. And like a number of other um, former soldiers and, and younger Germans, he decided that the reason for the defeat was that the government of the Kaiser, who was deposed in 1918, was weak-willed and did not have the will to carry on. The Weimar Republic, which succeeded the Kaiser of Germany, was a, uh, he thought, as a Jewish creation. Democracy was something Jewish. These are all complete fantasies. But it was the First World War that was decisive, including on Hitler's anti-Semitism, his belief that the Jews were for, to blame for everything bad that had, that had, that had happened. Now, moving on to the Nazis' rise to power, Dave on Twitter got in touch and he wanted to know, given the decline seen for the Nazis in the November election of 1932, do you think that if von Papen hadn't enabled the Hitler cabinet in January, that the Nazis might never have come to power? Well, uh, that, of course, is impossible to answer, really. All sorts of chance occurrences might have intervened. The situation when Hitler was appointed Reich Chancellor on the 30th of January 1933 was that since the onset of the Great Depression, with 35% unemployed, businesses collapsing, banks crashing, and so on in the early 30s, really the Weimar Republic had ceased to function. There's no possibility of getting political agreement or getting a, a coalition government 
uh, that had support of, of of the people, or even a majority of the people. Um, and we make it clear how bad the situation was. The Reichstag, the National Parliament, only met just for a few days in 1932. And there were serried ranks of uniformed communists on the one side and uniformed Nazis on the other side uh, who were just shouting at each other, singing, demonstrating. It was impossible. Democracy was not functioning. So you had a basically rule by decree. Now, the, the president had the power of ruling by decree in a state of emergency, which he could declare. And the problem was that while Hindenburg, the president, an aged war hero, field marshal, supporter really of the Kaiser's Germany and the leading people around him, Franz von Papen, an aristocrat, uh, Kurt Schleicher, a uh, representative of the army, various bankers, uh, various high-ranking civil servants. There's a whole bunch of people around Hindenburg who wanted to break the Ampass by dismantling the democratic constitution of the Weimar Republic. But they didn't have a mandate for this, so they were searching for uh, support in electoral terms and in in the parliament. And the largest party by 1932, by July 1932, was the Nazi party. It didn't have an overall majority, but it did have a mass of supporters who were also in favour of dismantling the democratic system. So from the summer of 1932 to the winter beginning of 1933, there was a search by Papen, Schleicher uh, and the others around Hindenburg for a means of getting the Nazis into uh, into power uh, with them controlling so that they, uh, they could steer the Nazis and use their mass support to legitimise a government that would introduce an authoritarian system and curb the socialists and the communists. In November 1932, there's small signs of economic recovery just beginning and the Nazis lose two million votes and they lose some seats in the Reichstag. They're still the largest party. They were in financial difficulties. Uh, They were running out of money. The leader of the Nazi party organisation, administration, Gregor Strasser, uh, had resigned because Hitler refused to join a coalition with the Conservatives in any other position except as head of the government. And on the 30th of January 1933, a deal was done where the Nazi party came into government, but as effectively a junior partner, uh, just four cabinet positions. The rest were occupied by conservatives. Hitler was ahead of the government. But Papen famously said, we've boxed him into a corner. We've got him where we want want him. He'll do what we want. One of the most famous mistakes in history. And the reason why... They felt they could do that because the Nazi party was weak. It was weakened. It was no longer the strong uh, institution it had been in the summer, but it was still strong enough in the end to outwit and outmaneuver them. The next question actually follows on very nicely from that. And this is from Brad Williams on Twitter, who seems to be a teacher of some kind. And he says, why were the Nazis able to cement their control over Germany in 1933? Well, it's like a kind of twin track approach. Firstly, Hitler as head of a coalition government which uh, in which there was quite a considerable overlap between what he wanted to do and what the Conservatives wanted to do, in particular crush the Communist Party, which had a, a hundred seats in the Reichstag uh, and wanted to create a Stalinist version of Germany and the Social Democrats, who were larger. In November 1932, the Social Democrats and the Communists actually together had more, more votes and more seats than the Nazis, but they 
were deadly enemies of each other and they couldn't get their act together to stop the Nazis. And one one way he did it was by using legal or quasi-legal powers of the government, particularly the president's power to rule by decree in a state of emergency. And here uh, a chance event came to his help on the night of the 27th, 28th of February 1933 when Hitler still hadn't cemented his power in Germany at all, the Reichstag building was burnt down by a lone Dutch anarcho-syndicalist sort of quasi-communist called Marinus van der Lubbe. He'd already tried to burn down three other buildings in Berlin and he struck it lucky with this one. He laid fires around the building, the curtains and, the, and other wooden furniture caught fire and... Uh, it was it was burnt down, and and Hitler, Goering, Goebbels, and the Nazi leaders persuaded Hindenburg that this is the beginning of a communist coup d'état, a violent revolution. And you've got to remember that only a few years before, the communists had staged a successful violent revolution in Russia in 1917, and they tried in Hungary and uh, in particular in Munich, um, and so it, it seemed. Quite plausible. I think they really believed it was a communist uh, attempted coup. And so they got Hindenburg to declare an emergency and decrees were issued in his name, which essentially abolished basic constitutional democratic freedoms. That's one stage. And the next stage was that on March the 23rd, the Reichstag convened in the Kroll Opera House uh, was persuaded by Hitler by a mixture of threats and inducements to vote for an enabling law. What that meant was that the cabinet, Hitler and the ministers, had the power to issue legislation without reference to the president or to the Reichstag. It gave them dictatorial powers. Uh, and, and those two things together, the Reichstag fire decree and the enabling act, were the foundation of... Uh, the Nazi dictatorship uh, and uh, there were other laws that were decrees that were then issued uh, for example uh, reforming the civil service throwing Jews out of the civil service and expelling all the opponents of the Nazis in the civil service many other many other laws that's only one track second track was mass uh, brutal violence on the streets particularly after the Reichstag Party decree, communists were arrested, uh, thrown into prison, uh, thrown into makeshift concentration camps, which are now opened uh, by the Nazis. The uh, brown shirts, uh, uniform thugs, uh, were appointed auxiliary police by, by Goering in Prussia. Uh, there were mass arrests of social democrats. There were arrests and uh, maltreatment of other people uh, from more centrist or right-wing political parties like the Bavarian People's Party or the Catholic Centre Party as a warning that they had to toe the line. About 600 people at least were killed, brutally murdered. Many were tortured, uh, up to 200,000. We don't know quite how many, but between one and 200,000 were uh, put into concentration camps, roughed up, uh, released on condition of not engaging in politics. So there's that kind of intimidation side, a brutal intimidation that goes along with this pseudo-legal framework to establish the dictatorship. The Catholic Centre Party, a large party in southern Germany, uh, was needed. Their votes were needed for the Enabling Act. They were both promised 
that the Nazis would respect their own institutions, their own Catholic youth organizations, uh, charitable activities and so on, uh, and threatened with civil war if they didn't knuckle under. Communists were banned from the Reichstag, which meant actually the the vote was illegal, but uh, it went through anyway. So it's this twin-track approach that enables the Nazis to establish the dictatorship. I've had quite a few questions on different groups living within Nazi Germany. And one that came in from Ava Fitz 13 on Instagram was, how were women treated in Nazi Germany? Well, the Nazis were a male supremacist organisation. It's part of the general racist doctrine that governs the Nazi ideology. They believed that politics was for men, so you won't find any women in any positions of power in Nazi Germany. There was a so-called Reich women's leader, Gertrude Schotzklink, but she had no influence on Nazi politics at all. She was just supposed to organise women. Women were there for supporting their men, breeding, having lots of children, and the Nazis introduced the mother's cross. If you um, had six children, you got this decoration and award. If you had ten children, Hitler became uh, godfather to the tenth child, um, which had an unfortunate effect that, of course, you had to name the child Adolf if it was a male. Um, I actually knew a uh, a man who, who was in that position. He was a Catholic family in Bavaria. He was the tenth child. He was Adolf. And the family were appalled, and so they gave him a middle name which is the most Catholic name they could think of, which was Maria. So he, he was Adolf Maria, poor man. Um, so women were organised in the Reich Women's Organisation uh, and they had to do things like uh, make clothes for the troops and uh, organise supplies and welfare and, and that kind of thing. But they were shut out of politics altogether. Women had the vote, of course, from 1918 and Hitler did not abolish that. But in Nazi elections, there's only one list of candidates. You have no choice uh, as to whom to vote. And in referenda, which, which were quite a few in Nazi Germany, again, there were kind of lobby fodder, basically. There were just uh, women, as with men, just were had to vote for the party and its policies. Then a question that uh, comes up a lot in popular search queries is, what was life like for children in Nazi Germany? Well, Hitler said that the aim, of course, was to bring up children in as physically fit and healthy if they were so-called Aryans, if they were basically pure Germans, not if they were not uh, mixed in with Slavic blood or least of all Jewish. So for non-Jewish, non-Slavic, non-foreign-born German kids, they had to enrol uh, Legally, but by the time of the Second World War, they were obliged to enrol in the Hitler Youth or the League of German Girls, which is a kind of uh, preparation for war, essentially. So from very early age, they had to wear uniforms. As soon as they got into school, every day began, singing Nazi anthems, saluting the Nazi flag. Uh, they had to go on lots of camps, expeditions. Uh, they were drilled in military terms. The girls were, uh, just as the boys were, indoctrinated, not just from the Hitler Youth and the League of German Girls, but also in school. School textbooks were rewritten to make them instruments of Nazi ideology. Um, some kids enjoyed this. It quite nice going out into the countryside at a weekend, camping out and singing patriotic songs and so on. But 
the idea that these youth organisations would be run by young people themselves was never really fulfilled. It was Nazi, older Nazis, brown shirts and stormtroopers were put in charge of them. They were quite authoritarian, often rather brutal. Kids got really bored with the ideology. Um, and so it was only a sort of partial success. But there was a whole generation of kids under the Nazis who were heavily indoctrinated. And you can see the results of this, for example, in the... Uh, notorious Reich pogrom, the so-called Night of Broken Glass, 9th, 10th November 1938, when Hitler and Goebbels unleashed uh, attacks on Jews, on Jewish property, on Jewish synagogues were burnt down, 7,500 Jewish shops were smashed up. Uh, and you find it's the young who take part in this. They join in the destruction. Not all of them, of course, but there are a lot of young people, a lot of, a lot of kids even, who were in you know, smashed windows and helped beat up Jews on the streets and in their houses. And older people whose ideas have been formed before 1933 tended to look on in, in horror, uh, either in sympathy with the, the Jewish victims or in a, a appalled shock at the destruction of property. Another group that we've been asked about from Andy Edwards on Twitter, and he says, how many black people, citizens or otherwise, lived in Germany and how were they treated in comparison to other minorities? That's a very interesting question. About 500, I would say, either black or mixed race. They had been the subject of massive ultra-nationalist propaganda already in the Weimar Republic. In 1923, when Germany defaulted on its reparations payments, the French occupied the Ruhr, the heavy industrial area uh, in Western Germany, and they sent in troops to requisition coal and iron ore and other substitutes for reparations payments. And these troops included black troops from the Senegalese colony and from, from other parts of, of French Africa. And this gave rise to massive racist outcry on the far right, including the Nazis. And when it came to 1933, the Nazi regime was set up, these 500 or so black and mixed race Germans uh, were said to be Rhineland bastards. In other words, alleged to be the offspring of rapes carried out on German women by these Senegalese Cameroonian troops. Now, uh, the result of that was that they were sterilised, forcibly sterilised by the Nazis, about 500 of them. This, of course, was a propaganda lie. Most of them were the offspring of consensual unions in the German colonies before 1918. The Germans had their own colonial empire, including Cameroon, which is then handed over to the French and British at the end of the war, uh, South West Africa, East Africa. And uh, these were the offspring of unions, mostly between Germans, uh, white German settlers and black African women. The numbers of rapes in the Rhineland in the occupation of 1923 was extremely small. Um, but anyway, they were all tarred with this same racist brush and they were, they were sterilised. Some of them were used in films. The Nazi film industry made some films about the heroic, what they saw as depicted as heroic German settlers and explorers. And the, these uh, uh, black Germans came in rather handy as extras on the set playing African tribesmen. Others were in the entertainment industry in one way 
or or another. Um, but they had a a very bad time, and uh, in, in, indeed in in Nazi Germany, they were stigmatized and and maltreated. On a related note, Joshua Rice on Twitter uh, brought up the subject of the Berlin Olympics and the success of the black athlete Jesse Owens. And he wanted to know, how did Nazi Germany attempt to explain Owens' success in the aftermath of the Games? The short answer is they didn't. They just ignored it. Of course, according to their own racial doctrines, the races and so on should have been won. uh, The Olympic events, athletics events, should have been won by white, Aryan, blonde and blue-eyed people. Uh, So they didn't quite know how to cope with great black athlete Jesse Owens. Uh, They simply didn't really talk about it at all. Um, And, of course, the media in Nazi Germany were totally controlled by the propaganda ministry under Joseph Goebbels. There's a kind of legend that Hitler walked out, as it were, and refused to shake Owens' hand and so on when he won. But that is a legend because, of course, the Olympic Games in Berlin, which had been decided well before the Nazis came to power, were run by the International Olympic Committee and and the head of state does not really have a role. So Hitler shouldn't have... Uh, congratulated or one well, wasn't his place to congratulate or shake the hand of, of, of victors in the in the events. On to another minority group within Germany and a popular search question is how were the Jewish people persecuted in Nazi Germany? And then a related question we had from Quizeria on Instagram was how did the Nazis convince the public to carry out such atrocious acts on Jewish people? Well, how were they treated? Um, essentially, they were sacked from their jobs, although Hindenburg, the president, initially in 1933, insisted that Jewish war veterans, of whom there were a lot, had fought for the Germans, with the Germans, they were German, uh, in, in World War I, uh, should be protected. But ultimately, they were fired from their jobs. Um, uh, about half of them left. It's a tiny, tiny community. It's, uh, it's less than 1% of the population. It's very, very few Jew- Jews in Germany. And they became the object of Nazi Conspiracy theories, they were seen as being disloyal, uh, hereditarily inclined to conspire behind the scenes against uh, Germany and so on. About half of them left by 1939, predominantly younger middle-aged people. Uh, They were deprived of their uh, citizenship, thrown out of their jobs. Uh, By 1939, by the outbreak of war, they were unable to make a a living for themselves. They'd been deprived of their property, which is so-called Aryanization. So Jewish-owned banks, shops, businesses were forcibly transferred, either with compensation or or, or with but not very much, uh, or even without it, to non-Jewish Germans. They set up their own cultural institutions. They were not allowed to go to German schools. So they set up their own, own institutions. The possibilities of emigrating were limited because the Nazis would confiscate your your assets if you're a Jew and you wanted to emigrate. As I said, about half of them did manage to get out to other countries by 1939. And then, of course, it got considerably more difficult in the war itself. And by 1941, uh, Jews were being expelled from their homes, forced to live in overcrowded accommodation with other Jews, and then they were deported to Auschwitz and other death camps in, in the East and, and exterminated. It's not the same as other aspects of Nazi racism in the sense that they thought of the Jews as a huge global threat. All Jews everywhere, no matter what they did or who they were, were going 
to try and destroy Germany. It's a total paranoid fantasy with no basis in reality at all. But that's what drove the Nazi extermination campaign. I've forgotten the other question. <laughs> so the second part was, how did the Nazis convince the public to carry out such atrocious acts on Jews? Yes, well, the answer to that is you should never think of the German public as a single uh, entity. It's extremely diverse and divided, divided by religion, by class, by region, uh, and, and also divided into active Nazis, members of the party, members of the SS and the SA, um, and the armed forces on the one hand, and uh, you might call the sort of the more passive public on the other. So we know a lot about how people felt because the Nazis had continual reports from a very local basis, and also the Social Democrats had secret reports smuggled out to their headquarters in exile about what people were saying and thinking. So there is support. Some people buy in to the Nazi view that the German Jews and then later other European Jews are a huge threat and should be exterminated. Uh, but a lot of Germans, particularly in the Catholic South, felt that this was wrong. And you find records of um, when Jews are being taken away from uh, towns in South Germany and put on trains, taken away in public, uh, to taken to the east, you find records of people saying this is wrong. These are people just like just like us. They shouldn't be doing this. But they felt powerless to do anything about it. And then later on, when the bombing campaigns, the strategic bombing offensive, which began from 1942, early 43, to destroy German cities, Joseph Goebbels tried to persuade Germans that this was steered from behind the scenes by the Jews in revenge for what the Nazis tacitly admitted uh, they'd been doing to them. Uh, and again, when Goebbels tried to publicise atrocities committed by the Red Army in 1944, when it, when it was invading eastern parts of Germany, uh, you find records of people, again, particularly in Catholic towns in the south, saying... Well, we should have expected this, is what we've done to the Jews. Um, uh, you know, uh, we can't be too outraged by it. The atrocities are real, um, but people felt that this is just a revenge by the Jews, like the bombing. Now, that shows that people, lots of people bought into the idea that it was the Jews behind the Allied war, war efforts, ridiculously behind Stalin and Churchill and Roosevelt. So to that extent, the huge propaganda apparatus of Goebbels uh, had scored a success, but on the other hand, it didn't have the effect he wanted, which is to make people angry and more determined to resist. So it's really the effect of years of indoctrination in the schools, in the, the youth, in the army, and jobs, in huge organisations like the Labour Front and the Nazi Party, um, and, of course, all the controlled, orchestrated media, newsreels, cinema, magazines, newspapers, radio, all of those things have been blasting out anti-Jewish propaganda from 1933 onwards. Uh, it had some success, but you shouldn't assume that all Germans supported it and there were some small groups who tried secretly to, to, to help Jews. You can see the contrast from 1933 itself, the early stages of the Nazi regime. They tried on the 1st of April... 1933, to have a nationwide boycott of Jewish-owned shops 
And massive numbers of Germans objected to this. They said, why, why should we not go into these shops? We've always been to them. They sell good, uh, good products. Uh, they're, they're reasonably cheap. We know the owner. Um, so it wasn't the case that the Nazis tapped into a mass of pre-existing extreme anti-Jewish sentiment. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. So it was well-known. You weren't supposed to talk about it, but people knew. And the claims that many, many Germans made after the end of the war that they had known nothing were basically lies. Then, still on the subject of anti-Jewish persecution and then the Holocaust, KB the Ginger on Instagram had a question which was, how much did the ordinary citizen know about the concentration and death camps? Well, I'm glad uh, there's a distinction made in the question between the concentration camps and uh, the death camps. To begin with the concentration camps, as I said, they were opened up in the uh, course of the Nazi seizure of power in 1933. They were for the enemies of the Nazis. They were for socialists and communists and some others. Uh, very quickly in 1933, the task of prosecuting and imprisoning these enemies of Nazism was handed over by various decrees uh, establishing new treason laws to the regular police, the courts and the state prisons and penitentiaries. So the number of people who were put in the concentration camps fell very rapidly until it's only about 4,000 by 1935. And in that time, you have 23,000 people, prisoners in state prisons, uh, who are explicitly designated political prisoners, and there are presumably many more. So the concentration camps acquired a, a new function in 1937, 38, really, which was to house so-called asocials, petty criminals, the so-called work-shy, vagrants, and, and others. And uh, then again it changed during the war, so it became places for putting slave labourers and forced labourers into. And that's when they expanded in number and, and size, absolutely huge, about over 700,000 people, overwhelmingly slave labourers, were in them by the beginning of 1945. So the concentration camps change. They are a kind of open secret. So you can see plenty of newspaper and magazine stories in 1933 featuring pictures of concentration camps and the inmates in them. And that has a kind of dual function. It's saying, look, this is what's happened to these communists. You know, we'll deal with the communists. And that appealed to people who wanted the communist movement suppressed. Um, but it also says, watch out, uh, because if you misbehave yourself, if you oppose what we're doing, that's where you will end up as well. So it has a dual, dual function. There's both approval, particularly in the middle classes, particularly when um, kind of vagrants and ne'er-do-wells are put in the camps in the mid to late 30s. But there's also a certain amount of, of fear and, and, and apprehension as well. And then there are other groups. So if you take homosexuals, homosexual men, that is, homosexuality was illegal under the German Criminal Code uh, from 1871. The Nazis, particularly Himmler, was rather obsessed with this. They basically redefined homosexuality so that previously it had only been homosexual acts involving penetration. After the, Himmler got his hands on the criminal code and changed it, 
homosexuality was just any kind of demonstration of affection uh, of a sexual nature between between men. Uh, um, so increasingly, when homosexuals were arrested or put into prisons, penitentiaries, relatively short sentences, when they were released, the Gestapo were waiting outside and carted them off to concentration camps where they're extremely badly, badly treated. So um, the public were aware... Uh, of of the concentration camps uh, and they kind of got the message that the Nazis were cleaning the country up as it were but on the other hand also uh, of course a lot of social democrats in particular who were put into the camps in 33 were mayors of local towns uh, government officials people like that the extermination camps are a different matter now these are opened during the war essentially from late 41 and early 40 for the purpose of exterminating by gas, uh, gassing in closed chambers or closed vans, Jews. And there was a so-called action, uh, the Reinhardt Action, named after Reinhard Heydrich, this top SS guy who'd, who'd been assassinated uh, in, in Czechoslovakia in, in uh, early 42, early 1942. Treblinka, Sabibor, Belzec... And they existed purely for the purpose of killing people. The, the, the Jews were arrested, taken there by train and marched off straight into, into the gas chambers where they were, where they were murdered. Uh, that also many Jews were also killed by SS forces, police forces behind the Eastern Front into pits. A lot of them were put into ghettos before they were transported to the death camps and lived in conditions which had an extremely high death rate. They were malnourished, a disease, no attempt was made to give them decent human living, living conditions. Auschwitz is famous, I think, for two reasons. One, it, well, three, let's, let's say Auschwitz is famous for three reasons. One is a very large camp, and two, a lot of people from all over Europe were taken there, whereas the extermination camps like Treblinka were mainly for almost entirely for Eastern Europeans. And um, thirdly, it was mixed. So there were three camps at Auschwitz. There was a labour camp, um, a particular factory, which was um, at Monovez, and, and it was a kind of a synthetic rubber factory run by E.G. Farman. Uh, then there was a, the main camp, Auschwitz I, where inmates were kept and marched on, out on work details and so on. Uh, and the third one was Auschwitz-Birkenau. That was an extermination camp. Uh, so, whereas at Treblinka and the other extermination camps, hardly anybody survived who was taken there to be killed, just a handful, literally. In Auschwitz, there were thousands of people who were registered, lived in the main camp and knew what was going on in the extermination facility. Now, was this well known? Well, it wasn't supposed to be well known, but the Nazis didn't go to too much trouble to keep it quiet. So you have particularly, because they're all located in the, all these camps located in occupied Eastern Europe, soldiers would be returned on leave from the front and tell stories about the mass murders. Um, it became known to the Allies by 1942 and the extermination programme really got into full, full swing. And in December 1942, the Allies issued a statement uh, which they had printed in thousands of copies and dropped from aeroplanes over Germany, uh, condemning the extermination of the Jews and promising that, that justice would catch up with the perpetrators. So it was well known. You weren't supposed to talk about it, but people knew. And the claims that many, many Germans made 
after the end of the war that they had known nothing were basically lies. Now, an interesting question came in from Chris Packham, who many listeners will know as one of Britain's best-known wildlife experts and broadcasters. And Chris wrote on Twitter, I'd like to know the actual number of high-ranking Nazis who really organised the regime and orchestrated its horrors. I've always harboured a notion that it was relatively few. A cadre of very evil and horrifically manipulative and unfortunately smart individuals. Well, um, it's usually thought there are about 300,000 Nazis who are actively involved in the extermination programme, the Jews. But of course, complicity in the various atrocities that the Nazi regime committed went much further down the social scale and political scale. It depends how much power you you think people... I mean, how, how much power did you have to wield in order to qualify for being regarded as one of the regime's leaders, as it were? Um, here it's a relatively small number, but you've got government ministers, you've got judges, you've got um, industrialists, employers... Uh, you have the SS, you have the Brown Shirts, the SA, you have the party itself, you had regional administrators. Uh, and you can see this partly in the war crimes trials at the end of the war. We we know that the Allies put on trial the major war criminals, people surviving Nazis like Goering, uh, for example, or Ribbentrop. Um, but there were many other trials both those carried out by the Americans or the so-called judges' trial of, of judges who condemned people to death or something like 16,000 executions sanctioned by the judges in the Nazi regime, of generals, of industrialists, of the SS, uh, task forces. Um, there are a whole string of other trials that go on to the end of the 1940s. And then you have trials uh, which took place in the countries where the crimes have been committed. You have thousands of trials in Poland, for example, uh, recreated after the war. You have thousands of trials in uh, Italy, in France, Belgium, uh, Denmark, all the occupied countries. Uh, Nazis in their thousands were put on, on, on trial. So that includes also very junior Nazis like SS camp guards, over a thousand of them were put on trial in Dachau after the end of the war. Um, so there's a very big justice operation. As for those who were actively responsible for shaping and framing policy, this has been a question of debate amongst historians for a, a long time because Hitler wasn't one of those national leaders like Bismarck, who, who sat at a desk and formulated de detailed policy all the time and read his briefs and so on. He was very much a man who acted on the hoof, issued commands verbally and had control where he wanted to control. His word was law. Nobody ever objected to what he said. Um, but a lot of the time, Nazi officials had to work out what he would want in the absence of any firm and detailed policy, particularly in areas like the economy. I mean, he would just say to the economic experts, right, get me these guns, you know, produce these ships, all of this kind of thing. And he left the details of how to pay for it to, to them. So it's quite a complicated picture with very different levels and degrees of responsibility. And then moving on to the idea of popular support for the Nazis, we had a question from King of Conkers on Instagram who says, did most German citizens fear the Nazis or simply acquiesce? 
Um, I think the answer is both, really. Um, depends who you were. So, as I said, the socialists and communists actually got more votes in November 1932 than the Nazis did, if you put them both together. And so the Nazis targeted them. They kept a very close eye on former activists for these parties. They had what were called block wardens. So in every city, every town, every street block was looked after by an active Nazi. And in working class areas with high degrees of support for the communists and socialists, the Nazis put in middle class lower middle class Nazi party members who had no love for the, the, the socialists and made sure that if there was any resistance movement, secret meetings in flats and so on, they'd be found out and um, punished. People had to put out their flags on Hitler's birthday. So there's a lot of coercion. Uh, the numbers of people in prison shoots up in the Nazi period. The concentration camps are talked about. So there's a lot of fear. But also at the same time, there's a lot of acquiescence. Uh, you know, mo most people wanted a quiet life. They wanted to get on with their jobs and get on with their lives, raise their families. There's a certain retreat into private life under the Nazis because to take part in public life, you had to be an active Nazi and do all sorts of things that many people really didn't want to, to do. So by 1939, you have a kind of tacit agreement that people won't object to the Nazis. They won't oppose them, apart from very some very small resistance groups, but the Nazis won't make too many demands on them either. And it's changes during the war because one of the main objects of Nazism was to make the Germans love war. And the great majority of Germans didn't. They'd been through the First World War and they saw the death and destruction. They didn't want that repeated. So Nazi foreign policy was um, very successful, not least because it made Germany great again, as it were, without very much bloodshed. So the great foreign policy triumphs, remilitarization, the Rhineland, annexation of Austria, the Angelus, annexation, the destruction of Czechoslovakia and the victories over Poland and then France and Western European countries, they were all achieved very quickly at a minimal cost and made the Nazis incredibly popular. Probably in 1940 is the height of their popularity. But after that, then, as the war became more destructive and claimed more lives and so on, people began to lose faith in the, in, in the Nazis. So it's a complicated sort of picture, really, of how German people reacted to the Nazis. They... Um, I think appreciated them for restoring the economy, though a lot of that was done by a kind of statistical manipulation and trickery and so on. But uh, they, ironically, there's a lot of appreciation of the Nazis' restoration of law and order, even though in the late years of the Weimar Republic, a lot of the disruption of law and order on the streets had been caused by the Nazis. Uh, they didn't like their attacks on religion, particularly Catholics, uh, did not at all like the, the Nazis' attempt to curb the Catholic Church and bring it under Nazi control. They didn't particularly like Nazi education system. There are a number of aspects of the regime which are also unpopular, so it's a very mixed picture. And then moving on to the war itself, we had a question from Richard Goldstein on Twitter, and he said, what does Professor Evans think of Timothy Snyder's theory that Hitler's project was essentially one of colonisation? with Ukraine as a primary object for land and resources. And I, I guess the deeper question here is, what exactly were the Nazis looking for within the Second World War? Well, I'm not sure that's all that Tim Snyder is saying. But it is right that 
Hitler's initial prime objective was to colonize Ukraine, parts of Belarus, Russia, and the breadbasket of Europe. He wanted to control food supplies from the areas because in the First World War, which remember he'd fought in himself and experienced, the Allied blockade successfully cut off food supplies from Germany. And Germany is a country that depends on food imports to feed its people. And so over half a million Germans died of malnutrition, starvation and associated diseases in the First World War. And this also, he thought, weakened the morale of the troops at the front who were worried by the privations endured by their, their loved ones. And of course, it affected supplies for the troops as well. So if you conquered and colonised Eastern Europe, you could get the food supplies. And this involved a horrendous policy called the General Plan for the East, which envisaged during the war the extermination by disease and by malnutrition and the expulsion of their from their farms and homes of between 30 million and 45 million so-called Slavs. Uh, including the Baltic nations like Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, uh, including Poland. These were to be exterminated and replaced by big German farms which would generate these food, food supplies. So all of that is correct. Um, in fact, interestingly, agriculture in these areas had been part of the Soviet system of agriculture with large collective farms, and the Nazis didn't propose to dismantle those. Um, they wanted to keep these large farming units. But, of course, Nazis, Nazi policy aimed at far more than that. This was to be the basis then for the conquest of Europe in a sustained war, ultimately, indeed, the launching pad for a war on America and on the British, British Empire, a kind of vast megalomania which had no chance of success. Taking the story to the end of the war, uh, Gareth Rees Collins on Twitter asked... By the end of the war, and even into the post-war, what level of support still existed towards the Nazi cause among German citizens? And he's talking here, I think, more about ideological rather than practical support. Hmm. Well, it's interesting that the First World War, where the Allies did not occupy Germany, except for a kind of rather superficial uh, occupation of parts of the Rhineland for 10 years or so, uh, and the French occupation of the Ruhr in 1923. But the First World War ended with the Germans still being on foreign soil. And so there was a feeling amongst many Germans, not all Germans, but many Germans, that Germany had not really lost the war uh, and outrage at the peace settlement. And so when Germans in the 1920s talked about peacetime, they talked about the years before 1914. There was an idea, really, it was quite widespread that the war was unfinished business. Now, this is not the case at all in 1945. First of all, Allied troops, so Americans, British, British Imperial troops, Soviet Union, the Red Army, uh, the Free French, occupied Germany. Germany was divided into four zones of occupation. Germany lost its sovereignty for a while, uh, and the controls exerted by the occupying forces on any kind of sign of a resurgence of Nazism were very, very tight. But in a way, that wasn't necessary because it was quite clear that uh, Nazism had lost. Germany's cities were in ruins. 
the leading Nazis had committed suicide and then they were put on trial. There was a massive publicity in the war crimes trials of the crimes of Nazism. And above all, Hitler was dead. So uh, if you go around, if you look at pictures of German graveyards where German soldiers in the war are buried, it's usually died fighting for Führer and fatherland. So while there was a lot of national national consciousness, even uh, national pride, uh, during the war, people, soldiers, their families also conceived of themselves as fighting for Hitler. With Hitler dead, there was nothing left to fight for. So there's no resistance. There's a resistance in, in every country that the Nazis occupied, but there's no German resistance to the occupation by the Allies. There is no resurgence of Nazism. The one or two neo-Nazi movements begin to emerge in the West Germany in the 19. 50s, they're very quickly outlawed and, and crushed. And uh, there's really, it's a comprehensive defeat. Now, a question that we had in from the Mogo on Twitter, which is quite a broad one. And uh, I don't know whether you'd be able to answer this in the time we have, but it's what in your mind are the most topical, controversial areas of historiography surrounding Nazi Germany? Well, debates move on. Fashions in historiography and history writing and research change and so on. At the moment, there's a debate, which I think may be dying down a bit, as to how far the mass of Germans supported what the Nazis called the Volksgemeinschaft, a national or racial community. They claimed to abolish social distinctions, to abolish class, to get rid of class consciousness and to create a working community of all Germans in which all Germans essentially supported the regime. Uh, other historians, including myself, are rather sceptical of this and look at this as rather a kind of propaganda exercise. So that's one debate. Also, most recently, there's been what's called perpetrator research, Täterforschung. That's an ongoing area of interest where historians are looking into the motivations, ideological formation of leading or significant supporters and executors of the of the regime. The idea uh, that, uh, you know, how do you account for the ruthlessness of the people who carried out the regime's most brutal policies? And now just one last question from me. Your next book, which you'll be writing a piece about for BBC History magazine, is The Hitler Conspiracies, which looks at some of the conspiracy theories that surround Nazi Germany. I wonder, as a bit of a taster for that book, if you could tell us a little bit about why you think the Nazis are such fertile ground for these kinds of theories. Well, the book The Study of Conspiracy Theories comes out of a research project I and a number of others were working on for the Leverhulme Trust. I take five conspiracy theories that are associated with or about Hitler and the Nazis. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion, anti-Semitic document, alleged to have been the inspiration for the Holocaust. The Stabilimac theory, the idea put about on the extreme right in Germany after the First World War, that the German army hadn't really lost, it had been stabbed in the back by uh, revolutionaries at home. The Reichstag fire, where there's a lot of conspiracy theories alleging that the Nazis themselves started the fire. Uh, the flight of Rudolf Hess, where, again, there's a large literature claiming that he didn't fly to Scotland with his so-called peace terms in 1941 on his own, but it must have been authorised by Hitler or perhaps he was enticed over by the secret services. There was possibly a, a peace party uh, in Britain that had uh, wanted to topple Churchill. And finally, the idea that Hitler didn't die in the bunker in 1945 but escaped to Argentina. 
which is a very fertile source of, of conspiracy theories. And I both use the idea of, of conspiracy theory, how, how conspiracy theories work, how they're structured, how they try and present what their idea of evidence uh, to look at these five areas uh, together, and, and, and which gives some very interesting results, actually. And also then to uh, look at these particular areas and see what light they cast on the structure of conspiracy theories. I think, ultimately, Hitler in a secular age has become a kind of icon of, of evil. A very few of these conspiracy theorists somehow seem to admire him, think, for example, he couldn't possibly have ignominiously shot himself at the bunker uh, in, in 1945, but must have outwitted everybody and, and made his escape. Um, mostly, though, uh, that there's a lot of um, conspiracy theorising that, that essentially is fascinated by this figure of Hitler and tries to attach this figure to other kinds of conspiracy theories to give them interest and significance for the public. So you find, for example, in... Conspiracy theories about Hitler's supposed escape from the bunker, you find uh, various different communities of alternative knowledge like UFO, flying saucer enthusiasts or Holocaust deniers or occultists and all kinds of different different groups sort of use Hitler as an object of their, their theorising, I think, to gain, gain attention and give significance to what they're doing. So I explore all of these themes. The subtitle of the book is, is called The Third Reich and the Paranoid Imagination. That was Professor Richard J. Evans. If you found today's podcast interesting, then please do drop us a line with ideas of topics and historians you'd like us to include in the series. You can do that on our social media channels at History Extra. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us again tomorrow for a discussion about the unexpected history of the Tudors. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.